You're listening to the Mount Pleasant Podcast. To learn more about our church, visit us online at www.mpbc.church. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. When you hear the phrase, they're walking together, what might you think of? What do you think of? Might you think of a couple perhaps walking down a beach together? Isn't that romantic? Hand in hand, in agreement. Walking together connotes the idea of harmony. The prophet Amos asked, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Of course the answer is no. To walk together means to be in agreement. I thought about our mountain climbing, the challenge of getting up and down a mountain like we've talked about for several weeks, like climbing Everest. In order to succeed on Everest, you have to work together with your Sherpa. You remember that guy? The Sherpa's the guy that carries all the heavy stuff for you. The Sherpa actually goes out in front of you, and you know what he does? He pounds out the steps that you will eventually take. Interestingly, many of you sent me this picture of the log jam on Everest a couple of weeks ago. Isn't that amazing? That is right before the top. Did you know 11 people died because of that log jam? The Nepalese government, they issue permits. This is on the Nepal side. You can climb on the Tibet side, but this is the Nepal side. They issued 381 permits this year. Now that's all well and good if you've got great weather for the two-week window that you normally have to climb. Then the monsoon comes. Problem was that first week was horrible weather-wise. So this is what happened. Log jam. And the thing with the Nepalese government is, is they need the money. They, get, they charge 11,000 bucks for each climbing, climbing permit. And in a country where the average wage for a worker for a year is 645 bucks, 11 grand is a lot of money. It's over $4 million in those permits. And one thing that the government did that they thought would help is that they require that you have a Sherpa. And so there are the Sherpas and the climbers. Problem is, there's too many people all at once. The thing about Sherpas and climbers is the fact that you need one to be able to get to the top. Perhaps the most famous duo, climber-sherpa duo, is that of Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. I showed you their pictures a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago actually, and Norgay and Hillary were the first duo to summit Everest in 1953. They're the first guys to do it. Both recounted after their historic feat how they wouldn't have made it without the other. No, Hillary and Norgay didn't walk side by side holding hands, no. One would take the lead and go as hard and as far as they could go until they would have to switch places. And the guy that was following would have to come and begin to break ground, tie new ropes, and eventually they made it to the top. Church families, as a believer in Christ, it's often said that we are walking with Him. Would you describe it that way, your journey? And might I ask the question, how is your walk with Jesus? Are you lagging behind today? Or might you be like me? So often, you know what I'm doing? I'm jerking on Jesus to cut. Come on, let's go. Let's go. 
This is where we're going. Come on. It's so easy to want to get ahead of the Lord, isn't it? Want Him to bless our steps. How is it with you today? This morning we're going to talk about walking in faith. We're going to look at the life of a man named Enoch. Have you heard that name before? Enoch. He is the man in the Bible who just literally walked with God right into heaven. Let's see this guy. You've made your way to Hebrews 11. Pick up with me in verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up. Notice that little phrase, taken up. So that he should not see death. He was not found, and oh they looked for him, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And how do you please God? Verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Last week we began to see how the Apostle Paul in pointing these Hebrews, these Jews now turned Christians in the first century are to look back to their own heroes of the faith to see how they are to exhibit faith in such trying circumstances in that first century. We see in Hebrews 11 how fantastically the Holy Spirit designed this chapter, this book in describing how if we're going to grow in our relationship with the Lord that we must have faith. And we see this through the illustration of some of Israel's greatest heroes of the faith. We saw this last week. The hero, Abel. You remember Abel, a child in the first family. Adam and Eve had Abel. They also had a son named Cain. And you remember how Abel, who was the younger of the two, he brought the acceptable sacrifice to God, yet his brother Cain did not. By faith, Abel brought to God exactly what God required. And what was that? Blood sacrifice. Blood sacrifice. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This morning we're going to literally go one step further. We're going to go beyond just the act of coming to the Lord initially. <clears throat> and we're going to see now a walk of faith. Now last week, in order to see the life of Abel, we had to go back to where Abel appears. And of course, that's the book of Genesis. I'm going to ask you to do the same. I want to ask you to go back in your Bible to the book of Genesis because this is where we find Enoch. And you're going to go to chapter 5. Turning to chapter 5, you're going to make your way to verse 21. And let me go ahead and summarize for you the first 20 verses of chapter 5. We don't even have to take time to read it. Because basically this is what it says. And he died, 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 and he died. Okay? Got it? Until we come to Enoch, and guess what? He didn't die. That's the upshot of the first 20 verses. Now watch this. Verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. For God took him. 
That's the key phrase. And as is so often when we're trying to interpret and bring and translate, in this case Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, into English, it takes several words to give us just one word in the original. And so the one word for the phrase, and God took him, is this word spelled L-A-Q-A-C-H, and it's pronounced lakach. Because <laughs> when you're speaking Hebrew, you got to do the lakach. Literally, I listened to the pronunciation like a dozen times. Lakach. What does it mean? It, get this. It literally means to take one by the hand and lead. So what did God do to Enoch? He lakach. He took him by the hand and led him right into heaven. How about that? I mean, is that not amazing? That's amazing to me. A little girl described this one day by way of what she had heard in her Sunday school class at church. She got home and her mom said, how was Sunday school? And she said, it was great, mom. The teacher taught about Enoch and said that God walked together with Enoch every day. And one day they walked so far together that God looked at Enoch and said, we're closer to my house than yours. Just come on, on with me. <laughs> it's a cute little story, but it happened. God took the hand of Enoch and walked him right into heaven. Now go back to Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews 11.5. You, you needed to see where this originated. And go back to the first part of Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was taken up, taken up, taken up, so that he should not see death. Taken up. What does that mean? Christian, does that remind you of anything? I heard it. Rapture. I heard it. Rapture. Enoch, get this now, was raptured. This is the literal first rapture of a human soul off of the earth. And did you know another one's coming? Another what? Rapture. What is the rapture? It is when the Lord Jesus is going to come back and take his church off of the earth. He's going to take us where? Up. And we're going to meet him where? In the air. In the air. The Bible describes this. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Listen to this. this and by the way, this could happen in 10 seconds. So let me say this to you real quick before we show you this. Prior to 1948, I believe that this event could not happen, the rapture. You want to know why? What happened in 1948 that's important when we're speaking of uh, prophetic events? Yes, the, the coming together of Israel as a nation again. And in 1948, under the leadership of the United States of America, the United Nations recognized Israel as a nation in 1948. Prior to that, prophecy was not fulfilled. For, for, for the Lord Jesus to come back and to take us, to rapture us off the earth, Israel had to be regathered. And they have been. And they are. 1948 it occurred. And so... At any moment, I'm telling you, in, in the, the Bible describes it, in, in a moment in the, in, watch me, in the, in the, did you catch that? Ready? 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 Watch. In a moment in the tw twinkling of, of an eye, he's coming. It could happen that fast. It could happen 10 minutes from now. 
And, here, and here's how it's going to play out. Watch this. 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord, that's Jesus himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Can you wrap your mind around that? And the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, then we who are alive, if this were to happen, say, in the next 10 minutes, who are left will be caught up. Now, the word rapture is not in Scripture, but that phrase caught up together, that's the, the Greek word harpazo. It means to be snatched up. We'll be caught up with them. With who? Those who were dead in Christ, they'll rise first and we'll meet the Lord where? In the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, church, let me ask you something. Is the rapture and the second coming two different events or the same event? Two different events, and we've studied that in the book of the Revelation, correct? Correct? You saw I mean, I don't understand, Pastor. What are you talking about? They, 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 when he comes again, that's his second coming. No, 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 no. It's two different events. Let me explain. The rapture happens where? In the air. In the air. For it to be the second coming, Jesus has to come where? All the way down where? To the ground, to here. He will come back to the Mount of Olives, the same place he left. That is the second coming. And the second coming doesn't happen until after the rapture. After the rapture comes seven years of tribulation on this earth, then the battle of Armageddon. And at the end of the battle of Armageddon, the Lord Jesus returns and steps foot on the Mount of Olives. The battle of Armageddon ushers in the Lord Jesus' second coming. So the rapture and the second coming are separated by the tribulation period. Do you understand that? Two different events. Now get a hold of this, because I, I, I want to make, I'm, I'm going to teach here just for a moment on something that, that I want to make sure that we get, because I think we get this all wrong, and pastors are the world's worst for this. My grandfather, who I talk about all the time, but to use as an example, he died 34 years ago. He died in 1985. Today he is in heaven. Where is his body? Right over there on the hill. Right over there. I can take you to the gravesite. Right out here in our, in our cemetery. So that if in 10 seconds the Lord Jesus were to return and we were here the shout and the trumpet, that sometimes it's called the shout that calls us out, my grandpa's body will rise out of that grave first. You go, well, it's been a long time. It's just bone dust. And what about those who were blown up on the battlefield, let's say in World War II? God has no problem with that either. He can take all the molecules and all the atoms and put them right back together. It's not a problem for God. In the beginning, he said there's light, and there's light. It's not a problem for God. Here's the point. The dead in Christ will rise first. So grandpa's body is going to go up, and then his spirit's going to come out of heaven into the air, and it's going to... Re you go, wait a minute. If he's in heaven right now, and his... How is he in heaven right now? Does he not have a body? Does that bother anyone? What does the Bible say? To be absent from the, is to be present with the Lord. Does, now, some scholars say that we may have some intermediate type of body. But here's the thing I want you to understand. We do not get our glorified body until the rapture. And so these preachers that stand up at these funerals and they say, oh, bless God, they had Alzheimer's, bless God, they got this or that and didn't have a leg and now they're in their glorified body. I'm sorry, sir, you hadn't studied enough. Because you don't understand that you don't get your glorified body. I don't get my glorified body. Grandpa doesn't get his glorified body until the rapture. We all get our glorified bodies at the same time. How cool is that? 
so that Grandpa, I'm, I'm, it's, the reunion is going to happen not in heaven but in the air. And I'm going to be like with Grandpa. I'm like, whoa, wow. Jesus was in his glorified body after the resurrection, correct? He appeared in the upper room. The doors were locked for fear of the Jews. How did he get in? Just walked right through the walls. Just came in. Glorified body. Not limited by time or space, nor will our bodies. Not limited by time or space. I don't need a jet pack at the rapture to get up in the air. I don't need NASA, okay? I've, I've got a glorified body. Jesus, he comes into the room. They thought he was what? A ghost. <laughs> what did he do to prove that he wasn't a ghost? He ate. He ate fish, right? Hey, can I, can I teach on something else just real quick? Did you, do you understand something? Ghosts don't exist. Huh? All this paranormal stuff you see on TV, do you know who's perpetrating all that stuff? Demons. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rules of the darkness of the unseen world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's Ephesians 6, 12. Listen, a person's spirit doesn't get to choose to just wander around out in space somewhere. This is not ghost Whoopi Goldberg and Patrick Swayze. Do you understand that? Don't let your information that comes into your brain be informed by Hollywood. A person dies and their spirit either goes to Hades or to heaven. They don't get to choose to float around down here. And some soothsayer or some fortune teller doesn't get to call that person from heaven or from Hades back into the spiritual realm of this earth. By the way, you've been seeing the yellow signs around town. They got a psychic in Boone now. Have you seen the sign? Anybody else seen the sign besides me? Yeah, you saw it, Sue. I'm not making this up. I hadn't even been to the place. Not that I would ever go, mind you. But if I were to go to that place, do you want me to tell you what I can bet that house looks like? A piece of trash. Ain't it the truth? Every psychic place you go to is a piece of trash. Listen, if they're so good with knowing everything, why don't they go to Vegas and just run the show? You understand? Bet on every horse race, every ball game, if they know it all, and just win it all. It's all smoke and mirrors, people. You understand when somebody's actually calling up somebody from the past, maybe your grandma or some rich uncle, they're not calling up their spirit. You know what they're calling up? A demon who watched their lives. You know, there's demons everywhere. Demons are watching our lives right now. So you get somebody starts dabbling in all this garbage, and they, start, and they, they, they call up somebody's spirit. No, they're calling up a demon who watched the life of that person and, and can say things that, that they've seen and witnessed. And oh, this soothsayer, this fortune teller is amazing. No, that's a demon that's just watched their life, just informing them. And all of a sudden, you're dabbling in the realm that God said, don't even go there. You trust in me. Not what somebody says looking at a crystal ball or a set of cards. You understand? You say, what's the point? The point is, is that our spirit, when we die, leaves our bodies. And whether we have an intermediate type of body in heaven or not right now, I don't know. But it doesn't matter to me. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with whom? The Lord. And that's all that matters. But at some point, for all eternity, I'm going to get this body back. And it's going to be looking good, let me tell you. I'm telling you. Man, I have to work hard to get this. Yeah. 
you look in the mirror and you get my age, you get 51 years old and you look in the mirror and you go, what happened? <laughs> what happened to me? Enoch was translated right off this earth. He was raptured. And one day that's going to take place. And why was he raptured? Because God did not want him to taste death. Now what was coming? If you know anything about it, and you're, you know what's coming in Genesis 6, we're going to get to this. Listen, I should have talked about Noah today. We get Noah next week, but I, I swear I saw animals walking two by two out there a little while ago. I'm telling you. We have had eight inches of rain in 36 hours. Did you know that? I emptied my range gauge, rain gauge last night, and already, I don't know what we got now. But we probably got over, I don't know how much we've had since we've been in here. But so when I left my house, we were like 7.9 inches of rain in 36 hours. So should be preaching about Noah today, but we're going to get Noah next week if we're still all here, right? <laughs> if we don't wash away. But here's the thing, judgment's coming. And Enoch knew the judgment was coming. God had shown this to him, and he became a preacher of righteousness to the people and to that generation of people. I want to show something to you. It's a, it's a pretty busy chart, but I want you to see if you can wrap your mind around it. This is the Genesis timeline from Adam to Abraham. Adam is the top left-hand corner, and seventh from Adam is Enoch. And Enoch, we read in Genesis 5, had a son who lived the longest of anyone, Methuselah. How many years? 969 years. And do you see what happened when Methuselah died? What came? The flood. I often said that when Billy Graham died, that the rapture had probably happened. But he died, and we're still here, so it hadn't happened yet. But watch that. See that dotted line right there about two-thirds of the way across? That is the flood. 1,656 years into human existence, the flood came at the end of Methuselah's life. God got Enoch out of here before it happened. Church family, you do understand that judgment's coming again. Because Jesus will come back a second time. Yes, he comes back in the air. He takes the church off of the earth. And I believe that is a description that we see by way of example of Enoch. Now, see, some people actually think we're going to go through the tribulation period. And so some say we go through the first half of the tribulation period. They call themselves, and then, then Jesus returns halfway through. Seven years of tribulation, halfway through, three and a half years in, Jesus comes back and they're mid-tribbers. Some are post-tribbers. They say that the church will go all the way through the tribulation, go through all the suffering, all the pain for seven years. They're post-tribbers. I'm a pre-tribber. And the reason I'm a pre-tribber of many reasons is Enoch. Enoch was taken out of here before the judgment came. Do you understand? And we will be taken out of here as God's people before the judgment comes upon those who have rejected Christ. Enoch was raptured. And another rapture is coming. You know, we saw last week that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, described Cain. You remember that? We talked about the way of Cain. And, and, and today we see, I'm going to show you again, that Jude said a little something about Enoch. In fact, what Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, records about Enoch is not found anywhere else in Scripture. You won't find it in Hebrews 11. You won't find it in Genesis 5. Only the Holy Spirit gave it to Jude. And it's exactly what Jude preached. Do you want to know what Jude preached or what Enoch preached? Jude tells us. Listen to it. This is now, now, before I show this to you, let, let, me, let me just show you this because I'll give you a teaser. What Enoch saw was the second coming of Jesus. Look at this by way of illustration. Imagine that's Enoch there on the left hand side. He's a prophet, okay? He's a preacher. 
of his day. And here's what he saw in Jude. I'm going to read it to you in a moment. He saw the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. So what Jude wrote down by way of what Enoch saw was something that Enoch, well, he didn't even totally understand it. Enoch saw past Calvary. He saw past the resurrection. He saw even past us. Who's us? The church. The Old Testament prophets didn't get us. They didn't even understand us. They had no idea that Gentiles were going to get the opportunity to get grafted into the vine. So that's why it's listed as a valley there. They, Enoch couldn't even see the church age valley. He saw past all of that. He saw past the rapture. He saw past the Antichrist. And he saw all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. How about that? And he didn't even understand it. But he was a prophet. And he described judgments coming. And it happened in his day, and it's going to happen again when the Lord Jesus comes. Now, now watch this play out. Jude, Jude is just one chapter, so it's Jude 14, verse 14. It was it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, he preached, in other words, saying, Behold, the Lord comes, now this is not the rapture because of this, with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all of their deeds. This is for those that have gone through the tribulation period, those that have not accepted Christ, and they have committed all of these things in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How many times can he say ungodly? Ungodly, 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 right? You know, Enoch would not be very popular today. And he wasn't very popular in his day either. Why wasn't he popular? And why would he not be popular today? Because he preached judgment. He preached against sin. That's not very popular, is it? If you, as a Christian say that something is a sin based on the Word of God, not, not because you say it, but because the Bible says it, how might you be looked at today? Unfavorably? Might it be unpopular? Sure. Enoch preached judgment. Judgment's never popular. Enoch, I'm sure, was told, hey, Enoch, you just need to preach a different message. In fact, if Enoch were here today and he were preaching today, people would say, Enoch, you need to preach on forgiveness and love and mercy and grace. Hey, church, I'm good with all that. And I'll say that till the day I die. I, I'm, I'm preaching love and mercy, forgiveness and grace. You want to know why? Because judgment is coming. Because of the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus, he took my judgment so I wouldn't have to, do you see? And if I reject him, then I have to take the judgment that was meant for me, myself. But Jesus on the cross took it for me. And so if you or I reject Jesus, we get what's coming to us. Do you see? We preach love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness because Jesus took the judgment. We must talk about judgment. It's not popular, though, is it? We just tell people to add Jesus to their lives like some add-on, you know? 
I'm not up here begging any of you to just add Jesus to your already full life. I'm up here telling people what Jesus said about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the life. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said that. Enoch preached judgment, and we're going to see it next week in the life of Noah. <laughs> judgment came, didn't it? It sure did. And Enoch preached God's judgment on unbelievers. Church, let me ask you, um, do y'all like Sweet Frog? Anybody ever go to Sweet Frog down here? Man, I love Sweet Frog. My kids love Sweet Frog. I love that place. I love John, the owner. He's a believer. He's a good man. And, and I tell you what I really love about Sweet Frog is right there, the topping bar. Oh, yeah. Problem is, the first time I went into that place, I had no idea how that whole thing worked. I got the biggest bowl in there. It's like a five-gallon bucket. I go down through there, and I just got every... And I loading up, and I got stuff in just hanging off, falling off everywhere. And I go, hey, how you doing? And she said, put it right there, and we'll weigh it for you. And I went, what? And she weighed it and weighed like 84 pounds, charged me $316. I'm like, you kid. I'm, of course, I'm being facetious, but I'm like, dear Lord, my, my bowl was like $14. I'm like, you're kidding. She goes, it's by the pound, honey. You know what? We, we try to use evangelism today, and we just tell people, just get a little Jesus. Like, like he's just one of the toppings. Just, just pick one. Just pick Jesus. Just add him to your life. No, to use our analogy of sweet frog, do you know what Jesus is as sweet frog? The bowl. He's the bowl. Right? He is the bowl. He is the life. Could you imagine going to sweet frog with no bowl? Topping bar. That's ridiculous. It is. And that's what it means to tell people that accept Jesus and just, you know, so that just add him to your life. And, you know, we don't talk about judgment or we don't. He is the bowl. He is the life. Would you be okay with just the bowl? Or do you need the toppings? You know, so often in our lives, so let's just be honest, Christian. We like Jesus for the toppings, don't we? We like Jesus for the blessings. But, but, but what about those times when the bowl is empty? Is it just enough to have Jesus? Is he enough? If John would let me do this, if I walked in one day and said, I started to do this, I just ran out of time. I was going to go down there and ask John or one of the girls if I could have a bowl. Just go, you know, go on that right side over there and get the bowl, you know, and say, can I just say, what, you need a dime or I'll get a dollar or whatever you need for this bowl. I'll give you that. I'm sure they would have just given me the bowl. And I just walked out with the bowl. And I thought about it. I thought about maybe even just getting bowls for all of us and just giving each of you a bowl as you left and you just ride around with the bowl in your front seat, right? Just, just ride around with the bowl. Are you okay with the bowl? Or do you need all the blessings? What if the blessings stop? What if you go through a season of time that it's hard? And there's nothing in the bowl, but you got Jesus. Is he enough? Let me tell you something. When you find that Jesus is all you got, you'll find he's more than enough. Sometimes he takes us to a place where the bowl is empty. And he says, will you still trust me if, I, if there's no toppings in it? There's no ice cream in it. Just trust me. Look to me. It's so easy to get to a place that we just want the toppings.
We want the good stuff. Sometimes in life, Jesus says, trust me no matter what. Church, can I tell you this? If God never blessed me with any of the blessings of this earth, there were no more blessings in this life. You know what? I'm okay. And here's why. The greatest blessing that I have is salvation. Right? That is the greatest blessing that any of us have, is that I'm going to be translated. I'm going to be like, taken from this earth, led by the hand, right into glory. What a blessing. Is there any greater reward than that? You see, that's Hebrews eleven six. See it again? And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for who would, whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. And yes, He does reward those who seek Him. Yes, there'll be times He'll put items in the bowl. The greatest reward we have is our salvation. Jesus rewards. Now go back and look at verse 5. This idea of walking with God. I, I want us to understand what it means to walk with God. Now watch this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was, he, he was removed from the judgment, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Catch that last phrase, having pleased God. Now, in my Bible, when I look at verse 5, it's got a little letter after the word God there. And I look down at the bottom of my Bible, and it says, it says, walk with God. Wait a minute. You mean they're synonymous? Yes. To please God means you're walking with God. That makes sense to me. Because if you're walking with God, guess what? You're pleasing Him, Right? That's why this works. So, so, so how do we walk with God? By faith. By faith, even if there's no toppings in the bowl. We trust Him. We keep believing. That's what these first century Jews needed to hear. They were under such tremendous persecution. Remember, many of them that were living in Rome were being thrown to the lions. Keep trusting. And sometimes you don't get what's in the bowl till you get the glory. We're not promised all the blessings here. Church, the Scripture is clear about this walk with God. We're to walk with Him. And there's so many places the Bible describes this. One of my favorite places is 3 John 4. This is one of my favorite verses. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are what? Walking in the truth. How about you? Is that a great joy for you? Ma'am, sir, mom, dad, are your children walking in the truth? You know, it's so easy in this life to focus on everything else, though, isn't it? What is your greatest joy for your child? Is it that they graduate? Is it that they've made great grades or, or are a tremendous athlete? What is your greatest joy? See, they can have all of that, and they can still go to hell. And what if they gain nothing? What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Mom and Dad, the greatest joy is knowing that our children are saved. It doesn't matter what they do. I mean, let them, if they're a ditch digger for all their life, there's nothing wrong with that. If it's just a menial job, we put so much pressure on our kids in so many ways to perform. There's nothing wrong with having expectations. You know my heart on that, but I'm telling you, the greatest joy is to know that your children are saved. Are they walking with the Lord, mom and dad? Ask yourself, 
Is my kid walking with the Lord? Do they profess to know Jesus? Are they walking with Christ? Have you asked them lately, honey, how is your walk with the Lord? We'll ask them about their grades. We'll ask them why their, their batting average is sunk to 280 and when they're a 350 hitter. Why don't we ask them about how their walk with Christ is? For a lot of parents, you're scared. You're afraid. You're afraid of the, the answer you might get. And that says something about you. Have some courage. Have some guts. And talk to your kid so that they understand they're looking to you. They're looking to you. And we got them in so many ways. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Walking in it. How about this? How about Romans 13, verse 13? Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Listen, you and I cannot say that we're walking with Christ if we're doing these things. If you're living a sexually immoral life, you cannot say you're walking with Christ. You're, you're going the opposite direction. If you're a drunk, if you're constantly quarreling and you're jealous, you cannot do that and walk with Christ. I'm sorry. I know we live in this age of grace where Jesus just ought to be tickled to death that we come here today and we've given him a little bit of our time. Let me tell you about Jesus. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he needs nothing. We don't throw him a little pittance of time. Listen, he's not some meek, and uh, he's meek. He's not some weak. He's meek. That's power under control. He's not some weak little milk toast Jesus who's just tickled pink that you showed up today. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he rides on a white horse, and he will come with sword blazing. And he demands warriors, pull the sword. Man, I want to, I want to, that's my Jesus if you want to know who Jesus is. My Jesus is not some weak wimp that's just tickled pink that we gave him just a speck of time. He demands me to be his warrior. And I'm ready. I want to fight for his glory and for his kingdom. Not to be mean, not fight in a mean way. You understand that. But I, I, he's called us to something greater than just a, the accumulation of stuff on this earth. That's the American dream. You know what that is, don't you? Get all you can while you can before you kick the can. Right? How spiritual is that? It's not. Jesus asks us to follow him. How about this? If you say that you're a follower of Jesus, can you be living in a lifestyle of sin? Yes or no? No. I heard like three people say that, but the rest were afraid. Because that's what people do all the time now. They're living lifestyles of sin and they still say they're a follower of Jesus. That is absolutely impossible. You cannot follow the son of holiness if you're walking in sin. In fact, I don't have to say that. The Bible says that. The Apostle John says that. You know, the one who's described as the one who loved Jesus? Here's what the Bible says, 1 John 1, 6. If we say we're saved, if we say we have fellowship with Jesus, while we walk in darkness, you're walking in darkness. This is the other walk. That's, that's a lifestyle of habitual sin. Then we lie and we do not practice the truth. John would go on to say in 
chapter 2 of that same epistle, 1 John 2 verse 4. Whoever says, I'm saved, see it? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is what? Is what? I'm glad you said that. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps Jesus' word in him, truly the love of God is being perfected. By this we know, this is how you know you're saved. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk like Jesus walked. Right? How did Jesus walk? You say, well, I ain't Jesus. I get that. Nor am I. But that shouldn't excuse the fact that he said to come follow me. Listen, Jesus is a person. He is a person with feelings, just like you and just like me. Jesus wept on this earth. Jesus was grieved on this earth. Jesus is in heaven right now with holes in his wrists and his feet. And he is a person. And he is someone who desires to be followed. Are you following him? Are you walking with him? Do you know Jeremiah 29, 11? I bet some of you do. Jeremiah 29, 11, I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope in the future. You like that verse? I do too. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope in the future. I like that verse too. We use that verse as our little taglines. I'm good with that. That's, that's the toppings. That's the toppings. Right? Do you know verse 12? Do you know verse 13? Can we look at it in context instead of proof texting everything? Can we look at it in context? Here it goes. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you. By the way, this is for the nation of Israel. That's another story. But declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But here's the thing. Verse 12, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Verse 13, You will seek me. Oh, really? He wants to be sought. Yes. And find me when you seek me with half your heart. Oh, I'm sorry. It, it does say all, doesn't it? So you're being cute. No, I'm not being cute. What does it mean to seek God with all of your heart? I wrestle with that. What does that mean? We've got to have a Bible stuck in our nose all day? Walk around like some monk. Home, home, I'm so holy. I'm walking with God with my whole heart. What does that mean? What did Jesus call us to be? Salt and light. He didn't call us to a monastery. He called us to go outside the doors, go out in the highways and hedges. He said for us to go and be his ambassadors. We're to go. Everywhere that we go, we're to take him. In other words, he's guiding our lives and we follow him. We are the salt and the light. Are you walking with the Lord? Can I tell you what I believe, church? I believe many Christians today have no idea what it's like to walk with God. Because they're very seldom in the presence of God. You know why? Because they're too busy and too preoccupied with life and their pursuit of happiness to get still long enough to be in the presence of God. That's why. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. When's the last time you got still and experienced the presence of God? When's the last time you experienced the presence of God outside of this room? Hmm? Because we do everything we can to try to bring us into the presence of God. Lord knows Pastor Brad and the praise team and the choir do their dead level best every week to put together songs and to put together the worship set. And I do my dead level best to study and to prepare. But don't you dare try to live off of us. Don't you dare try to live vicariously off of me or what these folks do up here. Jesus expects you to come to him. You got to go to him. You come to him. When is the last time you got still long enough to experience the presence of God? And some of you are sitting there going, man, I don't know. 
Let me tell you something. If you get into the presence of God, you'll know you're in the presence of God. You won't have to guess. How can you possibly be in the presence of God and not know it or remember it? It's a burning bush moment. Take off your sandals, Moses. You're standing on holy ground, and the devil's convinced us that we can't get along with God. And you know why? Because we're too stinking busy. Or at least we say we are. You know what the problem is? We're living our life by the squares. What are the squares? The phone, the tablet, the computer, and the <laughs> TV. They're the size of walls now. Right? I mean, to be still enough. Could, could you find a place in your house to go and get still with God? Where, where you left all the devices? Well, I, Pastor, I, I read my Bible on my phone. Yeah, right. And as soon as that notification pops up, you'll want to check it, won't you? Could, could you just take the Bible and get alone somewhere with God? Or does that scare you to death? Does it scare you to death what, what God might say? There ought to be just a, a little bit of reverence in coming in the presence of God, don't you think? Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, when he recognized he was in the presence of God. John, when he's writing the book of the Revelation, he fell on his face, scared to death, and he was just talking to the angel of God. And we come so flippantly to God, and he's holy, and Jesus is powerful. He's powerful. He said, let there be light, and there is light, and Jesus will speak a word when he comes back at the end of the second coming, and people will drop over dead and stand before him at the great white throne judgment, and he'll cast them into hell because of what he did? No, because of the fact they rejected what he did. Can you get along with the Lord and be in his presence? Would you seek him? This is what we're talking about. When is the last time you experienced the presence of God? So sad. So many Christians are eating crumbs off the floor when there's a feast at a table three feet away. <laughs> We're like spiritual dogs with our heads down licking crumbs when Jesus is three feet away sitting at a banquet table. And let's just imagine there's nothing on the banquet table. It's just Jesus sitting at it, a long wooden table that's like 40 feet long. And down, down there, he's at the end. And he says, sit down. Would that be enough? That's the bowl. There's nothing, there's no food on the table. It's just being in the presence of Jesus. Might I say to you, church family, it's the most wonderful thing that you could experience in this life is being in the presence of Jesus with nothing on the table. And when you've been in the presence of Jesus, it'll change your life. It'll change the way you think, the way you act, the way you talk, and you'll want more. The veil was torn when Jesus said it is finished so that we might have access to God, that we might walk with him. But I'll warn you, it'll cost you. It'll cost you to walk with Jesus. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you money. It'll cost you friends. It might even cost you family. Is it worth it? Oh, yeah. What did Jesus mean when he said in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit? Now, when, when you hear that phrase, to be poor, what do we think of? Lacking, right? Poor, you ain't got nothing. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Can I show you? This is what it means. It's to be like a man who's thirsting to death in the desert. And what is the one thing he needs? 
to win the lottery, right? No. A big house on a hill? No. A Lexus? No. What does he need? Water! I need water! Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus! <laughs> I need you. I don't care what's in the bowl. I don't care if there's anything on the table. I am poor in spirit. Jesus will be found when we seek him with all of our heart. I want to close with a, a quote. It's a long quote. It's about three and a half minutes for me to read it. You say, great, you're going to put it up on the screen. No, I'm not, because you'll get distracted. You're just going to have to listen. Bless God. This is a teaching moment. Like what you're going to do this week when you're going to turn everything off and try to find some place. Go out in the woods. Get along with the Lord for 10 minutes. I mean, just the Lord. And for God's sake, don't take the phone with you. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, I told you a few weeks ago, I walked across the parking lot here over this building, didn't have my phone, and I just, I almost went into shock. Where's my phone? I get it. I'm chief of sinners. Sometimes I just make myself walk away from that thing. Just don't have it. Tozer is one of my favorite authors. Tozer wrote the book that I've shared with you before called The Pursuit of God. And the, he wrote that in 1948. The, the sequel of that is The Pursuit of Man. He wrote that in 1950. And he described what it means to walk with the Lord. And he describes it as the spirit-filled life. And I just want you to listen and we'll close with Tozer's quote. Before a man can be filled with the spirit of God, he must be sure he wants to be. I'm going to read that again. Before a man can be filled with the Spirit of God, he must be sure he wants to be. Do you want to walk with God? Do you want to walk with Jesus? You've got to want to. Tozer says, and let this be taken seriously. Many Christians say they want to be filled, but their desire is a vague romantic kind of thing, hardly worthy to be called a desire. They have almost no knowledge of what it will cost them to realize it. Let us imagine then that we are talking to an inquirer, some eager young person, let's say, who has sought us out to learn about walking with Christ. As gently as possible, considering the pointed nature of the questions, we would probe his soul somewhat as follows. Are you sure you want to be filled with a spirit who, though he is like Jesus in his gentleness and love, will nevertheless demand to be Lord of your life? Are you willing to let your personality be taken over by another, even if it is the spirit of the living God himself? Do you really want to walk with God? If the spirit takes charge of your life, he will expect unquestioning obedience. He will not tolerate in you the self-sins, even though they are permitted and excused by most Christians. By the self-sins, I mean self-love, self-pity, self-seeking, self-confidence, self-righteousness, self-aggrandizement. That's pride, self-defense. You will find the Spirit to be in sharp opposition to the easy ways of the world and of the mixed multitude even within the precincts of religion. 
He will be jealous over you for good. He will take direction away from you for your life. He will reserve the right to test you, to discipline you, and to chasten your soul for your soul's sake. He may strip you of those borderline pleasures which other Christians enjoy, but now you see as a source of evil. Through it all, he will enfold you in a love so vast, so mighty, so all-embracing, so wondrous that your very losses will seem like gains and your small pains like pleasures. Yet the flesh will whimper under this yoke and cry out against it as a burden, and you will say, this is too great to bear. And you will then be permitted to enjoy the solemn privilege of suffering for Jesus. That's a privilege, church. To fill up that which is part of the afflictions of Christ for his sake. Now with these conditions set before you, do you still want to walk with Jesus? See, we're not at the topping bar. We're talking about walking out of Sweet Frog with nothing but a bowl. And you're being okay with it until God leads you to the topping bar whenever or however. You get it? Toes are closed with this. If this appears too severe, let us remember that the way of the cross is never easy, and it wasn't for our Savior either. You think the cross was easy for Jesus? This is a stripping away of ourselves, and the value of the stripping experience lies in its power to detach us from this life's passing interest and to throw us upon the weighty matters of eternity. Would you bow your heads with me? Stay seated right where you are. Please do not pick up your purse, and please do not grab your phone. Listen. Be still. And know that He is God. You're here today, and God's presence, I believe, is in this room. I sense His presence. You may or may not. That depends on your walk. God is speaking to each heart. And he's asking you, are you coming after me? Or do you want what's in the bowl more than me? Jesus, with brown hair, brown eyes, a beard, seated on a throne in heaven at this very second, looks down into this room, and he knows you, and he sees you, and he loves you. And he says, follow me. Walk with me. With your heads bowed, church family, I'll tell you, I'm not giving an, an invitation because to give an invitation means I'll have you stand, we'll try to play some music, and I've got to hurry to try to figure out, are we on the second verse, last verse, third chorus, bridge, and I'm not doing that. I'm asking you to do business right where you are because so many, you, you have gotten to the place that you don't think that you can do anything unless you come forward. I'm telling you, right where you sit is where God can do business with you. But yet, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you, you, you want to know how to know him, I'll tell you, we'll be under that back cover sign back there that says guest information room. I'll be there. Pastor Dale will be there. Matthew will be there. Debbie Thomas will be there. And we're, we're there to help you to come to know Christ. 
You may be here today and you're a Christian and you're not where you need to be and you know it. And the Holy Spirit has shown that to you. Not in a condemning way, but in a loving way just to tap you on the shoulder and say, no, 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 no. Not that way, this way. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not going to snap my fingers. I'm not looking for some sort of way I can count how many people made some decision or some move because that is disingenuous. This is between you and the Lord. So let him speak to your heart. What is he saying? He says, come and follow me. You're going to have to spend time in the Word of God to do that. You're going to have to get along with Him to do that. You're going to have to give the Spirit of God the ability to get you still long enough so that you can grow in your faith. If you're not growing in your walk, it's because you're not being still long enough to experience the presence of God. But oh, when we experience the presence of God, it'll change us. He'll change us. Lord Jesus, as you look down from your throne, I want to thank you for your presence. And I want to thank you for speaking into our lives today. And I pray in Jesus' name. Jesus, speak into the parents' hearts that have gotten off base with how they're leading their kids. And speak into the kids' hearts who've gotten off base with how they're interacting with their parents. And Lord, speak to the heart that's gotten off base with how we're experiencing you. Lord, I pray that your presence might guide us and might lead us from this place to go be salt and go be light as we walk with you, as we allow you to, 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 to lead us in this climb, as you crunch down the snow and you set the ropes and we don't get ahead of you. And we say, yes, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. In the submission is when we find peace. Thank you, Jesus, and thank you for your love. We pray this in your sweet name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Find us at www.mpbc.church and on Facebook at facebook.com slash mpbcnc. Have a great day, and we hope you'll join us again next week.